0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Today, Tukoronto is home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to work on this land. In order to meaningfully work towards collective liberation, we must center the Indigenous stewards of our land. Welcome to Breaking the Fourth Wall, a podcast by BIPOC TV and Film. I'm your host, Yasmin Kanji. I'm also the current advocacy and outreach lead at BIPOC TV and Film. I'm a filmmaker, a director, and the founder of Films with a Cause. We speak to rising and experienced creatives about their experiences in the industry having faced inequities as they provide insight into their career paths, while considering ways to improve the working conditions for all creatives. We hope you enjoy wherever you are, no matter what you're doing or where you're going. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is the first episode of Breaking the Fourth Wall. Um, I'm really excited to be joined by our wonderful and outspoken executive director of BIPOC TV and Film, Kadeon Douglas.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Very excited to have you. So I'm just going to read a quick bio. With a reverence for artists coupled with a deep commitment to equity and decolonization, Katon Douglas finds her joy in supporting creative talent in building thriving careers. The inaugural executive director of Toronto based nonprofit movement by TV and film spends her days advocating for systems change in the screen media industry, addressing barriers to career entry and advancement for racialized and indigenous creatives and disrupting colonial and discriminatory practices in the nonprofit sector and Creative industries. Prior to BIPOC TV and film, Kadon led marketing and communication strategies at the Creative School at Ryerson University and Women in Film and Television, Toronto. Kadon also worked for several years in the documentary production field as a production coordinator, researcher, and digital marketing and audience engagement specialist. She is a two time fellow of the Hot Docs Film Festival Doc Accelerator and Shaw Media Diverse Voices, a graduate of the Humber College Media Business Essential Certificate certificate program and the Chang School at Ryerson University and Chorus Entertainment Media Management Accelerator and is a 2019 Ontario Nonprofit <laughs> Network RBC Leading the Future Fellow. Katon is also an active member of the screen-based media community, volunteering her time on various advisory committees and juries. She is the former chair of the Real World Film Festival and sits on the board of the Canadian Independent Screen Fund for Black and POC creators and the advisory board of the Future of Film Showcase. Kaydon lives in Toronto with her son, a pensive and pragmatic tween, <laughs> and a cat named Philip.
1: <laughs> oh yes. Oh like, It's always so awkward listening to that. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I'm like, this person sounds so full of herself. Oh my gosh, I love um, it. But yeah, it's always a good reminder. I'm like, whoa, I've actually I've done so much work.
0: I love it, and it's important to celebrate that work sometimes too, right? Well, welcome. How was your day? How was
1: How's getting here? Oh, <laughs> uh, it was it was quite the, quite the journey, but I mean like I really love that I'm spending Fridays connecting with people, so mm-hmm. Now that this is going to be out there, I'm sure I'm going to get more emails, but I really leave Friday mornings aside to have one-to-one chats, especially with emerging creatives, people who are just entering the industry as well to offer any advice coming out from my journey. Um, so I do a lot of that on Friday mornings. So I book between like something around like 30 minute sessions with people. Um, and then I love to have the rest of the day to really like catch up with people for coffee and so on. And it really helps in terms of self-rejuvenation. And it's also my way to give back. I'm sure I'm going to talk about this later on in terms of how much of my life is steeped in gratitude. So Fridays are always my give back session.
0: Oh, I love that. That's so great. Yeah. Um... I saw this morning on Instagram stories that you posted a a, a quote by Bell Hooks. So it says, We cannot fully create effective movements for social change if individuals struggling for that change are not also self-actualized or working towards that end. When wounded individuals come together in groups to make change, our collective struggle is often undermined by all that has not been dealt with emotionally. Yeah. So what made you want to want to post that today?
1: (laughs) I mean, um, I'm coming out from this has been an interesting February so far. I kicked off the month um, spending three days in Ottawa at the Canadian Media Producers Association's primetime conference. Got a chance to meet a lot of my peers, my colleagues, a bunch of creatives who, I mean, for two years, we've just been seeing each other virtually. But having a chance to connect with people Also getting a deeper understanding of the pressing issues in our industry, whether they are legislative issues that we're dealing with right now or workplace policies and practices that we need to really uproot from our industry as well. So coming out of that and then entering this week where now I have a chance to reconnect with my peers locally in Toronto and really reflect on some of the conversations that took place in Ottawa last week. I really started to think again about how important it is that the work that we're doing is rooted in care. And that's why I see what's missing when we talk about who matters in the world, in the workplace and so on. It all comes from who do we care about? So I think that we need to do that. We need to ensure that care and solidarity um, and that's self-care and community care, that that is part of our movement, but also to apply a trauma-informed lens to the work that we're doing, too, um, to know that we are dealing with a lot of wounded individuals, you know, whether it be very recent, you know, in terms of what's taking place in the last few years, or it may be generational wounds that we're all dealing with. So I really think that it's important as we reimagine and rebuild this world that we address that as well in our movements and in our a- All the other ways in which we work.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think what you said about gratitude is really important, especially when we've dealt with so much to be where we are today. So, what are some of those ways that you show up for yourself?
1: I mean, like in showing up for myself, I've adopted a lot of really terrible work habits, you know, overworking myself. I'm also a Mm Taurus, also (laughs) born in the year of the ox. So, any of you who follow, astrology and the zodiac as well, that you'll understand what people who are Tauruses or Year of the Ox, how we are, you know, we're often workaholics, you know, I'm also a Virgo moon, so could be a bit of a perfectionist in my work and all aspects of my life. Um, And I really, for a long time, tied a lot of my identity to my service, um, my service to others, to my work, through my family relationships, my friend relationships as well. But I found that during the years, a lot of the conflict that I've been feeling is coming because I've been pouring so much into other people and other aspects of my life, but not into myself. So how I show up for myself now is knowing when to pause, acknowledging when I'm tired, when I need to sit down. And I mean, that's part of the luxury of working from home now is sometimes I'm like, it's time to put on The Office and just watch two episodes or it's time to take a nap or take a break and to really listen to my body now. And I think that's part of me honoring myself. So that's part of my care work right now. I love to go for walks and also to connect with people who ground me. Um, I would say like my three best friends, like we have our chat group and I love that none of them work in the film industry. Yeah. Um, so it's That's really important. Great. It's important Very to important. connect with people outside of the industry yes. too, you know. So that really helps me. I'm also part of a really great leadership community called Epic, which is run by Mike Prossiman, who is a founder of Unity. And that gives me a space in terms of speaking to people outside of our sector, other leaders, nonprofit leaders, so we could talk about our challenges and our triumphs in a safe space. So that's how I show up for myself now and care for myself. And I love that I have people who remind me. We're mm-hmm. like hey you need to you need to pause like what's what's going yes. on yeah. so I think it's one thing is just listening to yourself knowing when to pause and also another thing I think about I'm like what we're doing is not life or death
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know so really questioning what is really an urgency and if what I'm doing is worth risking my health
0: yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really important to have friends and to have people in your life within, but also outside of the industry who can ground you. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. I
1: think you need you need several people like that, yeah, you yeah. know, who could pull you out. And I mean, one of the greatest things my best friend did for me during TIFF, we ended up going for dinner in the middle of TIFF, you know. We went for dinner with another group of friends of mine who are authors, artists, mothers, fathers. And I think me and my best friend, we were the youngest people there, you know, other than the children. But just having dinner with other people, then we took a walk around Yorkville and had gelato. Yeah, that's (laughs) so nice. And that's one of the best things I did for myself during TIFF. And I love that she did that. She showed up for me in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, at the prime time at prime time in Ottawa. So I'm from Ottawa and I also have friends there. So in the middle of it, I also I went to dinner with a friend from Ottawa. And it was right in between like a really chaotic networking event. And then the dinner, which I saw you at afterwards for InSpirit. And it really was a a great reset because I, I would not have been able to keep going. You know, it's very draining because you're you're pitching yourself, you're talking about the work that you're doing that really matters to you. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to ground yourself in something beyond that as well with people who know you. Yeah.
1: And don't you find that some of it is performance? Yes, yes. Um, I, feel, I mean, a lot of it is performance. It's performance. You know, yeah. you have to be on, you have to say the right things. Yes. You You have to be aware of your body language, other people's body language too. Mm -hmm. the work that we do demands that we have to be on so much. You know, so I think that we need moments when we could just relax Mm -hmm. and where we don't have to perform and we could be around the people who don't require that of us. Mm -hmm. So I always say that it's important to have that. And I mean, I do have friends within the industry where we check in on each other. So, I think that's even important to develop those relationships of care within the industry, but also have additional support outside of it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So to kind of frame everything we're talking about, and also the wider context of what we do at Biprox yeah. Team and Film, I wanted to pull a quote from a book that inspired me <laughs> for this episode. It's called Take Care of Yourself, the Art and Cultures of Care and Liberation by Sundas Abdul Hadi. And she says, part of this decolonization work is care work, starting with the self and extending it into the community. So I know that that's what we're talking about here today. So how does how does that resonate with you, with you know, just being able to have those moments to take care of yourself in order to do
1: this work. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the author of this right now. So I hope I could find it after so we could share it later yeah, with can people. Yeah, we put in the show notes. But there is a resource called "Taking Care of Yourself While Taking Care of Others," and I love it. You know, and I found it in twenty twenty one in the midst of many uprisings around the world where we saw an increased demand from our community, not just for support for their professional life, but also just thinking about them culturally too and their individual needs, their mental health. And I felt so drained, you know? And I found that resource and it was really great, you know, and I actually have it in like the Google Drive folder for the staff right now, you know, for us to use that. It was really helpful for me to know that And then the other part was, I mean, we often hear you can't pour from an empty cup. And I saw something recently where it's even challenging us to think about that further. It's just like we pour from our overflow, you know, so I I want my cup to be filled, you know, and anything that I have extra, I could share with other people. So it really made me start to rethink this, you know. And think about how, like, I, I cannot be there for my community. I cannot be there for my family, my son, without taking care of myself. So one of the things I did in 2021 when I started this job was I started therapy, mm-hmm. you know. I made it very clear to the therapist that the reason why it's because of the challenges of this work, that I needed to ensure that I was pouring into myself to the point where I would have overflow so then I could pour into my community. And speaking of books, this week also made me return to one of my favorite books, Uh, which I highly recommend to anybody who's doing movement building work or working for nonprofit organizations or community organizations that are steeped in anti-racism work and really challenging these systems of oppression. Um, So the book is called Unapologetic, a Black Queer and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements by Charlene A. Caruthers. And Charlene is the founding national director of the Black Youth Project and founder of the Chicago Center for Leadership and Transformation. So she's someone who has walked the talk. And shared a lot from her own learnings. And one of the pieces that I came back to, there's a chapter in the book called The Three Commitments. And I won't go into like what all of the three commitments are, but it's from this chapter that I pulled the bell hooks quote that was on my Instagram this morning. I love that it says, one of the quotes from it is, our movement should live with the tension between self-care and community care. Individual activists should commit to self-care on whatever level they are able to. And communities should commit to creating a culture of care. It doesn't have to be and should not be one or the other. Yeah. You know? And then she also goes on to say that we are asked as movement leaders and expected to give our time, energy, and money. We are expected to share personal stories and to explore what brings us to this work. Giving of ourselves is a constant. Like, you know, it's often very fatiguing about doing this work is that there's so much that we're giving. There's so many demands placed on us, you know, whether they are direct or indirect. So we really have to ensure that we are taking care of ourselves and we need strong leaders and not just strong leaders in terms of people who are great at speaking, people who are great at like being at the front line of a protest, who could write amazing letters, you know, to push for policy change as well. We need people who are strong mentally, Mm -hmm. emotionally to do this work. Um, and what I like about this book too, there's another chapter called Five Questions. And I love when authors do this, it makes the work very simple for us. But in just saying, like, I'm doing this work, it's very important for leaders to know who they are. So, a big question is who am I? And that's work that I invested in in my first year in this job, in terms of I saw, like, I really need to have a good sense of self. Who am I? What are my limits? Where do I have room to grow? And I really had to think about that. What am I drawing from to do this work? I was talking to someone earlier and I said, I pull from my grandmothers to do this work. I come from a legacy of revolutionary women. So I draw from that to do it. So I am them. And then the next question was, who are my people? And that's what we spoke about just now, you know, in terms of knowing like, who are your people within and outside of the movement And then I think further on, there are three more questions, and it's what do we want, what are we building, and are we ready to win? Because that's the next part in terms of, I feel like there's a lot of buildup in movements to, we know what we want, we know what we are building, but often we are not prepared for the win. We don't expect it. We don't expect it. Like it's rare that we get to the point of winning with it. So what do you do when you win? And a lot of people I see are scrambling at that point. But I think you should be in part of your answer to what are rebuilding. It should be about that. You have to think beyond all of these actions, you know, once you get there, once you get to the mountaintop, what are you doing? Are you just looking around? You know, like, what's going on? Or what are you prepared to do then? What is this world that you have imagined? And I don't think we do enough imagining
0: mm-hmm.
1: when we're doing this work because we're so bogged down by the weight of the multiple oppressions that it doesn't give us time to dream, to dream yeah. beyond Where's the Where's our joy? You yeah. know, and I think that we need to spend so much more time in thinking about what is beyond this? You know, what does our liberation look like and feel like? What does it taste like? How do we feel about it? And I think if we, we need to spend as much time doing that as we do, how do we fight? Yeah. How do we survive yeah. this? well, what does thriving look like for us? So I think that's even part of the care work that we need to do.
0: Yeah, it leads nicely into the next part that I want to talk about, which is about movement building within the creative industry, because we're doing this work, but we're also creative beings. And so, you know, we're allowed to imagine a better future because we're also, we're creatives, we're artists, Uh that is what we do. So I suppose like for yourself, How do you balance an art practice, if you have one currently, with the community work that you do? And do you find that community work is intrinsic to your creative work?
1: I think my art practice is my community work. Mm -hmm. That's who I am. My journey right now is creating or supporting the building of this world that we deserve, that we've been walking towards for decades. But... My community work is tied to the creativity of others. Sometimes when things are like I'm really down, I would just go walk around the art gallery or I'd go watch some great movies, check out the NFB archive, go on Criterion channel, or I'll listen to music or read, or sometimes it's just sitting in the presence of artists. So for me, it's kind of like the inverse, you know, in terms of like the community building work is prominent with me but I wouldn't be able to do it without artists Mm -hmm. that's why I really see that my calling is to ensure that these artists survive and again like it's tied in like my survival depends on creators especially Black, Indigenous, and racialized creatives having the freedom to do their work, to tell their stories in a way that is authentic to them. So that's tied to my joy in community building, that if that's taken away from me, I have to now search for a new why. Mm -hmm. I really believe that all my life, I've been around creative people. You know, from my childhood, my childhood, I spent it around dancers and filmmakers and visual artists, muralists, um, singers, you know, just great oral storytellers. That's who I spent my life around. That's what fuels me each day and makes me feel like these are the people who I want to fight for, you know, and they are worth it. And when a creator tells me that the work that I'm doing frees them up. Yeah it liberates them to focus on their art that's the win for me
0: yeah and i was going to ask a little bit more about your childhood because a question that ends up coming to me and and mm. you know anyone who is doing this work i find is like where do you get that energy from <laughs> where do you get that inspiration from and and where's what's your frame of reference for this work because if if we're in this position it's because it's because of something usually that took place in our childhood or what we were exposed to so what was that for you
1: i mean i had a very for me, a very interesting childhood. Um, so I grew up in two places. I grew up in Grenada and also in Toronto, in the early 90s, Toronto. So born in Grenada, lived in Toronto from 1990 to 1995, went to a lovely elementary school, Ducin, down at Ossington and college. And I even found in that school, like when I look back at the pictures, I could spot myself as like, okay, there's not a lot of black kids at this school, but I never felt othered in that space, you know, and that's because my church community, Black and Caribbean, my family, Black, Italian, Filipino, like it was a very mixed bag that I had growing up in Toronto. So the only place where I was outnumbered was school, (laughs) you know, for my upbringing. And then the other part for me was, um, I come from like my two, my maternal and paternal family, both like amazing people. My maternal grandmother, she raised me from age 10 up up until 21. She was a healer. She was a hard worker. This woman was up before the sun came up. She used to make coconut oil, you know, as her hustle before she went to work on an estate. And she raised raised nine children, you know, uh, amidst very hard times, but... I love how she still had energy. She still did so much work in terms of healing others. And that's through massaging. Um, so she did body work and also herbs too. What I watched too growing up is that our house always had people in it, you know, and I didn't mind, but when I reflect as an adult, I realize all those people who my grandmother took in were people who were cast aside by society. Often women whose families had pushed them out and she allowed them into our home, you know, and this is ranging from women in their late teens, 20s, all the way to a senior citizen, you know, that we were able to do that. So I learned about care work through her and how she did it for no form of compensation. Like she never got rich off of it. You know, she did it because she had this knowledge, this practice and she wanted to share. My paternal grandmother died when I was a toddler um, but her legacy still lives today. Like, if I tell people who are from Grenada, especially from my same parish, if I say that Mary Douglas was my grandmother, people know. And I see it. I'll meet people in Toronto and they're like, Miss Mary was it was your grandmother. <laughs> wow. And they're like, oh, my God. That woman was so. And there are people who still have, like, tears in their wow. eyes over, like, who should So she died in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And her legacy lives on. So I'm like. I'm carrying these two legacies with me. You know, I have aunts and uncles and cousins who've done amazing things, continue to do like these groundbreaking revolutionary work. So that's what I draw from. And even when I grew up in Toronto, I sometimes tell people like the queer community raised me, you know, went to summer camps at the 519 and was around people who were very active in the LGBTQ movement in the 80s, in the 90s. So I'm coming from that. So from early on, legacy is something that's like a big value in my family. Knowing who we are, for me, as a Douglas, as a George, you know? And then also just thinking about Grenada itself. Some people may know that from 1979 to 1983, Grenada had a socialist revolutionary government. Like we had a revolution in 1979 and had these amazing new politicians and movement builders who had these big dreams for Grenada, who dedicated so much of their life to change, who had imagined this world, you know, where we were thriving. And then in 1983, it imploded and then America invaded the island. You know, and now we have a lot of mixed narratives about what happened and why it happened and what's the impact of it. But I'm coming from a country of revolutionaries too. In a book by George Brizan called Grenada Island of Conflict, he talks about three major revolutions in the country's history. And I'm like, I come from a people who've always fought back and who've always dreamed big. And we're a tiny island, you know, 133 square miles. Any Grenadians, if I got that wrong leave me alone that's what i remember from school <laughs> i did one year of elementary school there so that's all i remember from any type of civics class but um coming up from that and i mean also being raised for half of for a big chunk of my life like my formative life in a small community where everybody knew everybody mm-hmm. and there was a level of accountability that was built into that it's like you can't go acting foolish out there because we know who you are and you could come back and so I think all of this, my life in Grenada, my life in Toronto, carrying the legacy of my country, my grandmothers and so on, that's what has really shaped who I am today.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful. So it's, you know, ancestral, but it's also based off of your experiences. And I feel like family is a huge thing when it comes to feeling like you have the permission to expend all of this energy because it's based on family values and it's based on how you were raised and yeah, I could say like somewhat similar from my experience. I was raised with very concrete values around using your privilege. And even to this day, you know, m- my family were not connected to Turkey or Syria in any way. But my whole family group chat right now is like my parents are strategizing about how we should yeah. be, you know, sending aid to mm-hmm. Syria, for example. And it's like this is the way that I was raised and it it continues. And so, yeah, I think I think that's really amazing. And then I guess, like, what kind of creative influences are a part of that for you?
1: As a child, what stands out for me in terms of art entertainment? um, One of my favorite movies of all time is Polly Coming Home. It was directed by Debbie Allen. So it's a musical starring Keisha Knight-Pulliam and also um, Felicia Rashad is in it. I watched that film so many times as a kid it's a majority black cast Mm -hmm. set in the south it's around like a very affluent black family as well but there's struggles throughout this just talking about them through the civil rights era but through the eyes of a child so it was made when Keisha Knight Pulliam was really young I think it's like early days of Cosby show too you know so that was one of my favorites I'm like I want, I want to be part of art that makes people feel this way. I know yes. all the songs.
0: Yes. <laughs> and I'm
1: very mad that it is not on Disney Plus because that was an ABC oh, production. So yeah. Disney Plus, if you're listening, please put Polly Coming Disney Home. Low, and <laughs> a bonus is if they put the first one on. So this is a Black retelling of the Pollyanna story. I just thought it was so beautiful and brave for them to do that. Then also growing up with watching stuff with um, Oliver, Oliver Samuels, a comedian and actor from Jamaica, seeing all of his art as a kid. Also thinking about Paul Keynes douglas from Trinidad, I um, grew up a lot of his work, and Louise Bennett as well, you know? And that's what made me see, like, there is so much beauty in our accents, our language, our vernacular, you know, that we don't have to feel ashamed of it. And of course, like, I was a kid who read, like, all of the Sweet Valley High, yeah, all of the Babysitter's Club, the Enid Blyton's yes. and everything. <laughs> so I was still exposed to things some outside of my culture. So I think mm-hmm. I had a rich variety of literature art and entertainment to pull from but absolutely love that love that stuff um so that was me as a kid and then I think one of the biggest things and I think one day I pulled him aside and I told him but it was during like Caravana. I was I was playing mass and I just ran into him and I'm like oh my god I have to tell you so that was um Courtney McFarlane okay I was they just like you're one of the reasons why i love carnival so much you know as a little kid growing up in toronto i remember i did a summer camp at davenport perth and he was working there and i remember there was a year where we all made like all the kids make carnival costumes and we had a little parade in the neighborhood and i'm like i've loved carnival since so carnival is something that i draw from a lot and carnival soca calypso the yes. storytelling that's involved yeah. in it I love mass, especially traditional masquerade. Mm-hmm. If I always said, if I wasn't doing this work, I would be steeped in Caribbean cultural history mm-hmm. and I'll be like a full-time academic yes. focusing on Caribbean history culture. and culture. It's very unique, um, very, it is. very bright, very joyful. And such a blend of cultures, yes. of races. And I'm like, so yeah, so that's that's a big reference point for me. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, I'm like, you have to play mass at least once in your life. Like, <laughs> come on, you know. It's like, once it is so, it is rebellion. Right. You know, yes. it's freedom. Yes. And I'm telling you, try it once, but you can't play a stush mass. Right. Listen to me. If I play mass again and I see somebody playing mass in flip-flops <laughs> or high heels, I'm going to stamp on their foot.
0: <laughs> You know, Noted. you're going to be like local,
1: local executive director <laughs> commits act of violence on the lake shore.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, but I, I completely resonate with what you're saying about even Caribbean culture, because so I'm part Guyanese and I was also exposed to a lot of different cultures growing up. And so, you know, I know that you've also said that it wasn't really something you ever had to question, like representation or visibility, because it was all around you and, and you saw many walks of life growing up, I think that's really beautiful. I, I guess I want to want to ask is do, is that any different today in the way that you've grown up?
1: I think with the advancement of technology and people having way more opportunities and avenues to tell their stories, that's one of the things I see is great, but it's also been very problematic too in terms of some people have decided to take the mic to cause even more harm. so I think with the advent of new technologies, we've seen a kind of it's provided the opportunity for a lot of people to be liberated, to have different spaces to tell their stories. But I also think that it's contributed to us not really connecting with each other on a human level. It stripped that away, really, where a lot of times we are talking to each other not as human to human, um, but through the mediate, like having technology as a mediator for it. Um, so I think it's stripped away a bit of that. Like we don't spend enough time together physically, um, because I feel like there's something, there's energy that you, that you see with people that you feel in the moment in having a conversation with them. Um, there are ways in which you could connect that technology doesn't really help to facilitate. Um, So that's what I'm seeing. I'm watching now with, like, in comparison with my son, you know, I spent so much outdoor time as a kid, you know, even when I lived in Toronto. In Grenada, you have no choice. Why are you inside (laughs) the house, you know? Why are you in the house? Yeah, It's not time to eat. It's -hmm. not time to do homework. Why Mm -hmm. are you inside? It's not even raining. Yeah, Please go outside. But even here, I remember as a kid in the 90s, like, me and my cousins, we could explore the neighborhood. We'd go to the park, you know? And I see with my son right now, like he spends most of his time indoors. And because we now live in a high rise, you know, even less of a chance of him getting to know the community. So I feel like we've we've lost that part of it. And I really do worry sometimes in terms of what type of engagement our children are getting, how are they how are they building skills around conflict management, how to relate to others, you know, striking up random friendships on the playground. Yeah. And also the independence that it brings to it, that exploration brings. So yeah. that's a big difference now with it. Um, but I still think that there are different ways he's doing it. Like he could talk to his friends, you know, during the pandemic. Um, well, in the early years where he was doing most of his schooling um, virtually, you know, he still got a chance to connect with his friends. Mm-hmm. Um And thank God, because he finally had his own cell phone so Mm -hmm. he can do that. So he didn't feel as lonely and as disconnected. Yeah. You know, that's a way in which technology really helped him out. But I wish he had the freedom of exploration. Yeah. So really looking at how this will shape humanity for the next few decades as well, you know.
0: Bringing it back to community care and community in this day and age and finding a sense of belonging and community when you can't necessarily physically be there. Um, And I know so BIPOC TV and Film did self-care Sundays, among other initiatives um, during the height of the pandemic. How have you found, you know finding a sense of belonging and creating community in the pandemic and in this new age where it's a lot easier and convenient for people to hop on Zoom and Google Meet, as opposed to making the effort and, you know, taking time out of their day to meet in person?
1: Well, I think like the virtual connection is great as um, it really helps people who may be isolated geographically to connect people who may not be in parts of the country um, where they have direct physical access to communities so they could have that sense, to so build that sense of belonging and safety. That's the other part needs to be added to it. So it really helps then. But at some point, some of these are Band-Aid solutions. It's great to have, but not as a permanent solve for it. One of the greatest things for me is our Facebook group. I think that's maybe one of the first things that BIPOC TV and Film did like over mm-hmm. a decade ago, where people finally had a digital space where it's it's for us by us, you know, and we've done a lot of work to ensure that it is a safe space for all. It takes a lot of care, a lot of work for us to do that. There have been times where we have to do some conflict management within the group, but knowing that it's within our safe space that we could have those daring and sometimes challenging conversations instead I think right now we're at a critical point culturally on a national level, talking about the need for safe spaces for people from our communities. When we watch what's recently happened and the response to Blackout Night at the National Arts Center, all people were asking for was one night, one night at this national institution where Black people could congregate and watch a play about Blackness and that was seen as a threat, um, so that's why I think like our persistence to create safe spaces and to demand that they remain that way—that's such a huge act of rebellion. Now it's an act of resistance for us to do that. I'm really committed to that. Our Facebook group is—that's that's a digital space that I guard, mm-hmm. and like not my baby, not here. Yeah. Go do this somewhere else. You know, it is an act of resistance for us to stand up and say, no, we need spaces that are for us, by us, Yeah, you know? I was talking to somebody earlier about the National Arts Center controversy and was saying, well, let's turn the conversation to, why don't we talk about why is it only coming up as a threat when it's Black people who want to congregate, when it's Muslim people who want to congregate? Why is our congregation such a threat? Why is our unity, our solidarity such a threat and that's the conversation that we need to have you know so i i really hope that this is used as a opportunity to shift the conversation
0: yeah Absolutely. I mean, um, there's been a lot of attacks on the Muslim community, and um, being in some of those spaces, I'm. I, it's so interesting just noticing how much those spaces, even in congregation, have to shift according to knowing that there's a threat of you know s- someone coming to just harm us while we're oh, in right. prayer. You
1: see that in like yeah. in terms of drag clubs now. Yes. Yes. Are under attack. Like, yeah. How yeah. is this? Yeah, somewhere that's supposed in, to be a safe space. Somewhere, in your way. yeah, somewhere you're where... not even invited. I know, like I know, you can't even get into the club. I know. How, <laughs> how did, did you get it? How, how did you? <laughs> how did you get here? Yes. You weren't supposed to be here. Oh, you know, to put Deborah, uh, but like, yeah, this this is what I'm seeing now. So I think like we really have yeah. to push to ensure that we could have our spaces and. I wish that there was more protection for our people, you know, understanding that instead of giving opportunities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for disruptors. It's about protection, speak, you yes. know. Like if people from like a community that I don't belong to are concrete, how is that my business? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, please m- you know how many things would run differently if people just minded their business. Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> like Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How is this your concern? Like yes. focus on focus on you. Focus on you, please. Exactly. You know? So I really think we have we have to, we have to stand firm on that, you know, mm-hmm. but we also need to be protected, mm-hmm. you know. And we also need people in positions of power to stand by us. Yeah. To say, yes, this is this is needed, and you need to back off. And yes. this is where we need allies yeah, absolutely. to step in and use their power in that way you know call up your people and be mm-hmm. like what what the hell are you on <laughs> yeah. so that's one thing that i really focus on right now and we've had to do a lot even in terms of bipoc tv and film programming you know in saying that this is why we need our self-care sundays to be closed this is why our programming is closed because we don't want people to coming back to what we were talking about earlier To feel the need to perform.
0: Exactly. To feel
1: the need to hide a part of themselves, you know, because they don't want to trigger the many fragilities that exist, you know, that they don't need to perform in front of whiteness, you know, that they could just be and we could talk. And sometimes there are things we don't even have to say out loud because we have an unspoken language amongst us. So we really fight hard to show like this is why that it's not an act of discrimination, mm-hmm. you know? It's because it's not violent. We're not excluding people because we think less of them. We're excluding, we're, we're creating, we're, we're prioritizing the safety of our community.
0: Yeah, because when we're in those spaces and when we are cared for and we do feel safe and we can be our full selves, then we can, you know, in, in our situations, be the most creative and, yeah. and be the most open and have the most fruitful conversations yes. and the best interactions and not worry about how we're coming off or uh, assumptions someone else might have about us. We could relax our shoulders, Yes. yes. you know,
1: and I. I even liken it to people who are queer, you know, who might go to spaces that are usually not queer friendly, you know, and how they may have to perform heteronormativity in those spaces, but then they could go to their own space and they don't have to do that. You could just like let loose, you know, and just be yourself. And that's the level of freedom that I want for people that I don't understand why it's a threat. But then again, um racism bigotry has no sense and it's it's futile it's futile to try to to try to make sense of that nonsense
0: yeah i mean people still will find it a threat like people find people a threat who they don't understand and I think especially when you see people who are experiencing joy and you yourself are maybe a little bit bitter Ooh. right then then you look at that and you don't know how to respond to exactly. that so you respond with hatred and yeah. and bigotry and and to you that's wrong and, and that's not something that because, should exist because, because your
1: light highlights the darkness exactly, in life.
0: exactly, and not seeing that person's yeah.
1: light as a way to add more joy yeah. into your life yeah. but you see it as a thread, instead. So that's I mean, like, there's a lot of inner work
0: mm-hmm. that's needed
1: um, yeah. around that. Absolutely, but not for me to do. That's right. for people to figure out on their own. I'm yes. not a therapist.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so when it comes to when it comes to showing solidarity with communities that um, you know you might not have those exact identities or exact mm-hmm. life experiences, um, how do you try to do that? And what's what's the line or what's the balance between? you know, speaking on issues that maybe aren't exactly affecting you personally and rather passing the mic?
1: Yeah, I, I usually prefer to pass the mic. Mm-hmm. That's often my preference. Or or if that's not a possibility, if like if I'm in a panel, just randomly asked a question or something, um, I would still try to bring it back, even if I cannot pass the mic physically, mm-hmm. you know. I may share something that I've gotten permission to share um, or prior to, I do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. I do so much research and I ask people who are from those communities, you know, um, I'm like, I'm, I have a platform. What would you like me to share? You know, or even I think about how can I use my, my privilege, Mm -hmm. power, influence, you know, how can I use it to shed light on someone else? And it's also I think it's very powerful to just be like this is not my wheelhouse. I think that there's something beautiful to say like this isn't even for me to speak on that there are people who are more knowledgeable that that level of vulnerability and truth um it helps, you know? Um instead of trying to put on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, and so you mentioned, you know, you have somewhat of a platform now where people will turn to you for answers or they will turn to you to to get, you know, what they believe to be the right perspective on an issue. Oh, yes. First of all, how how do you deal with that?
1: <laughs> uh, it's really something I'm working through right now. I'm naturally an introvert. I also have a lot of social anxiety. So... It's been very odd right now getting used to this. I'm like, what is this? Please just send me back to the corner that I'm used to. It's a real struggle for me right now. And I did not feel it until we started going back to things in person. So that was around TIFF. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't even know if, I don't really have an answer for that right now because I'm, I'm also at a point where it's, it's something that feels so foreign to me to feel like I have that. Um, But one thing I saw, I'm like, I really recognize over the past few months, how easy it is for someone with a, either a superiority complex or a big ego, how easy it is for that person to get carried away. Because of the praise you're going to receive, the platform you're going to, that power, yeah, it could be so intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, whoa! I see how easy it is to take advantage of this, and that scares me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'm the person who will do that, but I can see how easy it is for somebody who already had that sense of self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. and then now yes. there are people saying like validating that of sense of self well,
0: when it's all that you're oh, surrounded yeah. by to a certain extent sometimes it, it makes sense. Me out. <laughs> and because recently I've been surrounded by certain individuals who are very well known yeah. and who a lot of people admire yeah. and it's interesting to me to observe what happens in those moments yeah. because you know it, it will just automatically surround that individual and their experiences and all of a sudden you realize all of the energy and the space and the air is taken up by this one individual you know
1: yeah it's very uncomfortable yeah. like I'm physically uncomfortable right <laughs> yeah. now um yeah but I think that I'm I'm grounded enough for it not to mm-hmm. affect me in that way for me it highlights the responsibility that I have For sure. that's what it does for me it's like oh okay if this is what if this is the power that I have access to, mm-hmm. what can I do with it? I'm so grateful for my upbringing and for my family, for my core friends because honestly, if I start acting like that, somebody's going to slap me. Yeah, somebody's going to in be my put family in your is place. Gonna, is gonna yes,
0: me, like, yes. I experienced that. <laughs> you know,
1: that they're going to pull me up real yeah. quick. So that's that's the main thing. You have to be so grounded in yeah. doing this work.
0: Yeah. So we're nearing the end of our time. So I wanted to do a couple of rapid fires. Ooh. Um, so what's a TV show you're binge watching? Um, The Upshaws. Okay. <laughs> what inspires you right now? My son and niece.
1: Beautiful. Um, what's your morning routine? Um Twitter. Mm. coffee mm-hmm. make sure my son is up and out the door mm-hmm. um, selfies love that every morning you're taking not every, every, morning, every morning Okay, I'm not obsessed <laughs> with myself it depends on like the position of the sun and all about the lighting oh, you yeah. can't do no, not sun. waste golden hours oh yeah do not waste good lighting yeah okay absolutely
0: well this was a beautiful first episode for our Breaking the Fourth Wall podcast I'm I'm really excited that we had the opportunity to to do this and and thank you for thank you for being here and holding this space with me thank today. You.
1: This was so beautiful and such a great way to like oh I'm so happy that we're able to do this and thank you so much.
0: This podcast is recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. For more information about this week's guests and their work, please see the episode's description. If you have episode requests, send us a message via our Instagram DMs. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time, and take care.